This past week, um, I, or the last few weeks, I've done a funeral, and then I officiated a wedding, and then officiated another funeral. And of course, in ministry, you do those kind of things, and, and both are radically different, but they both are celebrations in a way, especially if the deceased is a believer. Right, celebrations of a, of, a, of a couple coming together, starting a life together, and then celebrations of a life and funerals. But funerals can be difficult times, uh, obviously mourning and grieving. And I want you to think about a time maybe you lost a loved one, a time where there was a tragedy and you had to deal with it. There's no way around it. You have to go through it. You have to process it and endure it. I want you to think about who was there for you during those times. Was anyone there? If you're a Christian and you are a member of a church, you might have had a lot of church family there for you. Or should have at least. Because that's what church family does. They're there for you. Or they should at least. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the love of Jesus. Specifically, the Christ-like love of Jesus that's found and should be found in the community of believers. We have a long passage today, and we've already done the Lord's Supper, so instead of reading through 44 verses, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for today. I pray, Lord, that my words today reflect your heart, that you speak through me, you fill me with your spirit, that your Holy Spirit is in here today, that it receives your word today. Lord, uh, and, and that we hear what we need to hear today about the love of Jesus, about how you love us and how we are to love others today and what that looks like in these traits of your love. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm giving us not three, not four, but five traits of Christ-like love because that's what our passage gives us today. Five traits. I try to get it down to three, but you know, sometimes you just got to, you got you to not use the scripture. You got to let the scripture use you. Amen. And so that's what we all should be doing when we're looking at the Bible. And so five traits we see here of Christ-like love. Number one is that Christ-like love is relational. Christ-like love is relational. Right, look at verse one. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This is referring back to a story beforehand. And whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we get a picture here in these verses of the inner community of Jesus. A man named Lazarus was sick. His sister Mary, his sisters Mary and Martha were, were taking care of him. He was sick that they thought he might die. It was serious. Jesus was close friends with the family. And of course, they reached out to him. They, they had an idea of who he was. They knew he was a man who had never sinned. They knew he, who, who he said he was. They were putting their faith in him. They reached out to him looking for help. And Jesus tells them that the purpose of this illness is not death. 
The purpose is so that God will be glorified in his illness. Jesus loved them, and he told them uh, this truth as he comforted their fears, and they trusted in him because they had a relationship with him. And I think that's one of the things that we need to remember as we trust Jesus. When we have a relationship with him, it's easier to trust him. When we don't follow him, when we don't relate to him, it's harder for us to trust him, even though he hasn't changed. Because Christ, like love, is relational. Now, you may know that, and I heard this this week, and my wife was talking to me about this this week, that she heard this too, that, you, you, that depression is on the rise in America. And, and studies have been done cross-culturally to try to understand why is this a local phenomenon. It's not a global phenomenon. Why is it a local phenomenon in the educated, industrialized West in America, it is a phenomenon. And what the researchers have found is that people groups that emphasize strong community presence have lower rates of depression. Where there's a strong community of some sort. There are some African tribes where they're just barely surviving day by day, day, by day but the community is everything and they have virtually zero depression. Even though they have hardly any uh, anything that, that we would have in terms of, uh, uh, of temporal things and blessings. But in America, with our highly individualistic emphasis in our society, we are really bad at forming meaningful communal relationships. Now, we have friends. We have acquaintances. Right? But are they meaningful? Are they people we can trust? I hear the stat that if, you can, that if you have two or three friends you can trust, you're winning in life. That's sad. You should have more than that. You should have many people you can trust. It's not necessarily a problem with you. It's, it's a problem with society. Now, most immediate families, even in America, the way we've developed, do not have regular access to extended family, whether it be grandparents or aunts and uncles. Some do. Many don't. And if they are near in physical proximity, many times these relationships are distant in emotional proximity. So our individualism is hurting what we would call our mental health. We don't have the strong communal relationships that we need to thrive both as people and as God's people. You know, I know myself, if I wasn't in ministry, if I wasn't a pastor, I probably would not have the close communal relationships that I do have. I have many people in the church I know I can call up for prayer and that can help me out um, because I'm forced to have them in many ways as a pastor, right? Now, I enjoy it and I love it, but if I was just a believer coming to church, I probably would not have the closeness that maybe I should have and have now. That's why God has designed the church to be a community of believers. That's why you're not saved into yourself. You're not saved into an island. You have people in your church who are to pray for you, to help you, to love you, to care for you. And it's just not for the needy because we're all needy. This is all of us. This is all of God's people. And we see that Jesus had a community. He had his disciples. But then he had the equivalent here of this church family among this community of Jews, these people that he knew well and intimately, and one is sick and 
they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Christ-like love is relational. We can't love others if we don't know them. I mean, we could do nice things for them. We can't truly love them if we don't know them. So we must be intentional, especially in our culture, to not wall ourselves off, and we need to embrace the communal aspect of our faith. So number one, Christ-like love is relational. Secondly, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, when you read that, you think, now, wait a second, what? When he heard he was ill, he went right to be with them, right? That's what you would think that you'd see. That's not what we read. When he heard he was ill, he delayed. It seems counterintuitive because it is. Why, why would Jesus delay his presence if he had the ability to heal this man? And people knew he had the ability to heal. They had seen him heal the blind. They had seen him heal people. Why was he delaying? But Jesus knew the future. He knew what would happen at the end of our story. And he knew the reason of why it needed to happen. He had a purpose in his seemingly inaction. He had a purpose behind it. Look at verse 7. After this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Like, it's dangerous. Why, Why would you go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This would often happen. They'd ask Jesus a simple question. He'd come up with this metaphorical deep uh, saying, and they're like, wait, what? They're trying to figure out what he means by it. Verse, Verse 11, and after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So he says, I gotta go back to Judea. They said, you're a wanted man. People are trying to stone you. And he gives this somewhat confusing metaphor, basically, of that, that when, as long as they're walking in the light, as they're following Christ and following his will for them, they can trust him in the will of God. Because he's in the will of God. He can go back to Judea because he's living in the Father's will. And so they said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. You know, sometimes God has to speak to us plainly, doesn't he? (laughs) He tells us truth, and we just don't quite get it. And He's died, he says, verse 15, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Jesus finally gets this buy-in from his disciples, even though they don't quite know what they're getting into. At first, they were confused, and Thomas says, yeah, we're willing to die too. Thomas doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just zealous. He's zealous to, to follow Jesus. But Jesus was purposeful in his love for Lazarus. It may not have made sense to the ones he loved, but it was his love for them that allowed him to make purposeful decisions. My four-year-old I know he doesn't think that I love him because I constantly don't give him what he wants. Or he, I discipline him when he does something wrong. He doesn't understand why he can't get this. I took him to Walmart yesterday to, 
to, to buy a, a, a birthday present for a friend. Now, this is not for him. It's for his friend. And I picked out a present. And I said, we're going to get this. And he said, no. And he threw himself down on the, on the Walmart floor and rolled around and cried. I said, no, we're getting this one, right? Okay. We ended up getting what he wanted. But anyway, the story is, <laughs> there's many, it's just easier at that point, right? I mean, one was 10 and one was 80. I'm joking. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, it was 20. But anyhow, um, sometimes, you know, we, 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 we don't... We don't give them what they need, and there's a purpose behind it, right? There's a purpose behind it. It may not make sense, but it might have to be done if it's a truly loving act, right? Christ-like love is purposeful. Jesus had a reason for his inactivity. He had a reason for his tarrying, for his delay. There's a purpose behind it, and that reason was love, as we're going to see. Number three, Christ-like love is confrontational confrontational i think it's funny when people will avoid confrontation and the reason they give is i don't like confrontation well i mean who does i mean some of you might i don't know that might be something we need to talk about but anyway who who does like confrontations right verse 17 now when jesus came he found that lazarus had already been in the tomb four days now, remember, Jesus had told his friends that Lazarus' sickness would not lead to death. And he never lied before. He's Jesus. So they're confused because he died, right? Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So he had died. They had had the funeral. He was in the tomb. They, they were still grieving with him, which was about a week-long period at least, a lot of the community had been there. That's a strength of the Jewish community at the time that we don't really even have. After about a couple days, people kind of disappear. For them, they had it for weeks sometimes. They were there for them. But Jesus was not there. The audacity. Where is Jesus? Of all people that should be there, the one that could help him, the one that could heal him, is not there. You couldn't text him. You couldn't call him. Weren't sure where he was. You had to have spies on the road, which apparently Martha did. Look at verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha didn't wait. She heard that Jesus was on 17 coming right up here. She said, oh, I'm going out to him. She doesn't wait for him to get there. She met him on the street. Y'all know some Marthas, don't you? Can you imagine this scene? This Jesus, where has he been? Oh, he's coming? Oh, well, we're going to go see him right now. I'm going to march myself down to, I'm going to meet him on the street. I'm going to find him right there. Well, he's too late. And I'm going to go to tell him that he was too late. He could have been here. He could have done something about it. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Y'all know anyone like that? I'm sure you don't. Verse 21, amen. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's your fault, Jesus, he died. What is she saying? It's your fault. Hmm. Can you imagine this? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I think she pauses after saying that. She still called him Lord, right? She catches herself after her little rant, and she remembers who she's talking to. Verse 22, but even now, I know 
I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know. But you could have done something about it. Verse 23, how does Jesus handle this confrontation? Does he say, you're right, I could have been this, I'm sorry. Does he cut her off completely and ignore her and just say, don't talk to me, woman? No. He deals with her how he should, and he's very loving and he's very direct. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And then Martha says, I know, I know what the Bible says. I know that he'll rise again the resurrection last day. I, I understand the scriptures. I know what it says. Yes, yes, yes. I know he'll raise, rise again. But that's not what he meant. She thinks she knows it all. Isn't it funny how sometimes we think we know what God is saying when he's not saying that at all? Amen? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I know there will be a resurrection. He says, no, no, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says this to her, do you believe this? He's direct to her, but loving. Do you really know who I am? Do you really believe me? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You know, a lot of arguments conflict happens because we don't have the whole story on both sides martha didn't have the whole story she thought she did she was prosecuting jesus without all the evidence but jesus met her and he was willing to have the hard conversation with her and so was she now what did she not do she didn't call him out of from his prison she didn't wait for him to get in the house and say well there he is where you been jesus she didn't call him out in front of everybody. Hey, look what the cat drug in. Glad you finally made it. That would have been sinful. No. She went to him one-on-one -on -one, the right way and had a little powwow with him on the road like she should. And then Jesus also did the right thing. Of course, it's Jesus. He gently rebuked her, corrected her, quizzed her. But in this Christ-like confrontation, they both showed the love they had for each other. She, was, she felt comfortable enough to him to come to him and say, you hurt me, you could have done something. And he was able to say, I've already done it. And I'm going to do something. Just wait. Just wait. Christ-like love is confrontational in this way. He didn't take it personally, and he was able to comfort her in her unbelief and her grief. When she grieved, she was angry. Some people don't grieve that way, as you're getting ready to see, but that's how she was, and he dealt with her in the right way. Christ-like love is confrontational in a good way. Fourth, Christ-like love is also, though, empathetic. It's empathetic, especially when it needs to be. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. Again, saying in private. She didn't announce to the whole house. That guy Jesus, he finally showed up. 
No, she said, Mary, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. I guess he's still talking to her, or he's waiting. I don't know. He was held up there in the place. And when the Jews who were with her in the, uh, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her because she left in a tizzy. She was crying. She ran out crying, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. She just left the, left the building crying. Where is she going? Well, she's probably going to, the, going to the tomb. They don't know. Verse 32. Now when Mary, now here's the, look at the differences. When Martha came out and met him on the street and was angry, and said, if you were here, you wouldn't have died. What does Mary say? What would Mary say? She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact same thing as her sister. It's like they were related. <laughs> we'll get that later today, right? Same exact thing, but in a different way. She's at his feet. She's crying. She's mourning. How does he handle it? What does he say? Do you not believe in me? Does he look down on her and say, quit, quit crying? Why are you crying? There's no crying here. Do you not believe who I am? I am the resurrection of life. No, he didn't have to talk to her like that because she wasn't wagging her finger in his face. She was crying and mourning. He handles the sisters very differently. With the indignant and angry Martha, he gently consoled her and talked her through it. But with Mary, he immediately became empathetic. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with me with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is, let me tell you something. This is a lesson for all of us. My children, my whole family, everybody, they know if they cry, they get a much different dad than if they yell at me. <laughs> they get a much different Charlie. Right? And this is what they get with Jesus. He was deeply moved. It means he was agitated. What was he agitated about? It's weird that the Greek word uses this word. He was agitated about the whole situation. That there was a death that people were mourning, that there was pain, that he knows he could have done something to prevent it, but there's a reason why he didn't do it, that death had taken Lazarus. It was painful for his friends. Jesus hates death. That's why he destroyed it on the cross and through his resurrection. He hates it. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he looks at the scene, and he says, verse 34, where is he? Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And they point Jesus, Jesus to the, the direction of the tomb. And then we get the shortest verse in the whole Bible, verse 35. Jesus wept. All he, says to, all he says to Mary is, where is he? He weeps for his friend Lazarus. He weeps for the pain his sisters were going through. He weeps that Lazarus had to experience death. And he had to die. It's a horrible thing to have to go through. He weeps over the entire situation. It was sad and Jesus wept. Why? Because he felt it. Why did he feel it? Because he knew them. And he had empathy. 
Love is empathetic. When you love someone and they hurt, you hurt. You feel it. I've done a lot of funerals, and some people I knew know better than others. Right? But when I'm at the graveside, especially if it's military, and they play taps, I tear up. Because I feel that moment with that family. And the more you know them, the more you feel it. So the Jews said, verse 36, see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Here he is showing his human side very humanly. And he gets criticized and adored at the same time, right? Even the Son of God gets criticized. Don't expect when you get criticized, when you show Christ-like love, it'll happen. But it doesn't bother Jesus because he loved these people because Christ's love is empathetic. And finally, number five, Christ-like love is God-glorifying. True Christ-like love brings glory to God. Not to us, not to others, to God. Because we know it's not about us. Jesus wasn't about him. Of all people, it was about, the, about following the, the, the Father's will, even though he is God. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. This is foreshadowing for his own life. He knows he's going to be put into a tomb with a stone. He's staring right at it. And he says, verse 39, take away the stone. And boy, that's powerful now that we know about what happens to Jesus. Amen. Take away the stone. Now, if he had said that, people would have gasped. It would be like going to the graveyard and say, dig him up. What? Yeah, dig him up. So Martha, just in case Jesus doesn't know, tells him, verse 39, Lord, <laughs> by this time there will be an odor where he's been dead four days. And Jesus says, oh, I didn't know that, Martha. No, he didn't say that, right? He knows. Jesus, this is going to stink. Why? Verse 40, did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted his eyes, lifted up his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you will always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. The reason he died, the reason he delayed and made sure he died was to come back so that the people watching would believe that God had sent Jesus. They were stubborn. They did not believe it. They needed to believe it. They have to believe it for salvation. And he says, this is why my friend has died, so that they may believe. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine people watching this? What? And the man, verse 44, who had died, came out. His hands and feet bound with the linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth like a, some kind of mummy coming out. 
And I can just see him standing there. People don't know what to do. Jesus says, unbind them. <laughs> Let them go. What are you doing watching? Unbind them. Let them go. What an incredible scene. To bring glory to God, Jesus let a friend die just to bring him back to life so that people would believe. When people see that type of love that Christians have for each other, they will believe. Amen? They'll believe. When they see First Baptist loving each other like this, they'll say, those are Christians. Those are following Jesus. They are glorifying God in this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that you've included in your, in your word. This incredible miracle, Jesus raising the dead, foreshadowing his own death and resurrection. But it's not just a miracle. It's a story of people's lives that Jesus lived with, experienced life with, knew, ate together with, laughed with, cried with, and the death that happened so that others could believe. But we don't always know your purpose in our lives. But if we are living with the idea that we're following you and on mission for you and your kingdom and that we are trying to do your will, we understand that even in the midst of tragedy, you bring good and amazing things for us to see so that we can worship you. Lord, if there's one here today that's never placed their faith in you, that today they would do so, that they'd be saved, that, that they would be unbound, just like Lazarus was unbound from from the, the linen cloths of death, that they would be unbound from their sin and they'd be freed. And they would be resurrected in the new life, being given a new heart, that the heart of spirit would replace the heart of stone. That they'd be saved today, they'd be born again. Maybe there's someone in here who just needs, Lord, to trust you. Whatever it is, Father, whatever they're going through in their life, whether it's unforgiveness or bitterness or anger or sadness or depression, that they just give it to you, Lord, and they trust you, just like Martha and Mary eventually trust you, that they would trust you in their lives today. Maybe they need to come down to the steps and just lay it at your feet today, Lord. Maybe they need prayer. I would be glad to pray with them. Whatever it is, Lord, that you would work in their lives today during our response time. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.